the path doesn't have to be straight. We have enough information that we can value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome back, everyone. We get real AF here every week with legit female movers and shakers in tech and science. I'm Vanessa Alava. And I'm Sue Robinson. Please remember that you can seek us out on any platform where you listen to your favorite podcast, and you can go a little bit extra and give us a great rating, comment, and review. And of course, subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on any of this great content. Today, we're joined by fellow podcaster, Dr. Nancy Yen Shipley, orthopedic surgeon, speaker, and producer host of The 6% with Nancy MD. Nancy specializes in sports medicine and is a mentor and champion for women and diversity in surgical specialties. She'll be sharing her insights on the gender gap in medicine, as well as the mission of her show, The 6%. Doc, welcome to WeCraft. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure to be here. Before we begin, uh, where can our listeners connect with you online? And obviously, they can find you on the 6% anywhere they listen to their favorite podcasts, I'm sure. Exactly. I can be found online at my website, nancymd.com. And I am also on Twitter as well as Instagram as underscore nancymd. Thank you for sharing. So we're really excited to have you on the show today uh, because you're a fellow podcaster and you're an amazing woman in STEM. We have not had an orthopedic surgeon on before, so you're you're the first. So kind of like walk us through a day in the life to get us started of an orthopedic surgeon. So an orthopedic surgeon is an MD or a DO. So we're physicians and surgeons. Um, I did my four years of medical school followed by uh, five years of orthopedic training and an additional year of subspecialty training. So I did that in the sports medicine and arthroscopy area. And so my day-to-day, I am in private practice. I am a partner at Multnomah Orthopedic Clinic, which is here in Portland, Oregon, is a little bit of everything. I think I really like the variety of what I do, especially from day to day. There are some days where I will be in clinic and that's where I will see patients who uh, need care but don't need surgery or have just had surgery or they're getting ready for surgery. So that's where I see my patients in clinic. And then on another day, I may be in the OR, I may be in more than one OR, (laughs) driving across town sometimes, and I get a really nice variety, even though I am pretty subspecialized. In sports medicine, we take care of a number of different body parts, but um, a lot of arthroscopic and minimally invasive surgery, and my personal area of focus is the shoulder. Interesting. I'd be curious to know what specifically about surgery appealed to you as you were considering your medical training and what direction you wanted to take it. What is it about surgery that spoke to you and also what like inherent skill set or temperament do you think you have to have to be a really effective surgeon? 
I came to surgery kind of a funny roundabout way. I entered medical school thinking I would be a primary care physician or a family medical doctor. And that, you know, in retrospect, that is so far from what my personality and tendencies are that I, you know, you kind of look back and you go, what was I thinking? You know, and I, I, I value and I so admire my colleagues who are in that specialty, but I definitely would not have thrived there. I think that what drew me to orthopedics was the, the, ability to work with my hands and for it not to be just a profession of thinking, but also of doing. And one of the things that was really impactful for me as I got to see more orthopedic surgery being done was just longitudinally being able to see how people would come in as patients and really have a decreased quality of life. And go through their orthopedic treatment or their orthopedic surgery and emerge on the other side, not without hard work, (laughs) um, on both the part of the surgeon and the part of the patient in participating in rehab and adhering to all the precautions, but come out on the other side with their life transformed or their life restored. Uh, Because it is, you know, and I think most of us have been there, it is really quite life-changing when you go through an injury where you can't do your job or you can't even do the things that seem small and seem minor, but that give you so much quality of life in your day-to-day. I couldn't agree more. I uh, A couple years ago now, it was, I think, the day after Christmas, I uh, slid and fell and broke my humerus bone. Oh, no. um, and you're talking to somebody who survived childhood with not a, like a scratch, not a bone broken, nothing. So I experienced a broken bone in my adulthood. And I had a, a toddler at the time and oh. just little things that you take for granted, as you said, like picking her up with like one arm mm-hmm. or bo- you know, like it's, it was, it was so, I don't know, jarring. It was mm-hmm. a good word because it really puts mm-hmm. things into perspective. Um, and I, I would love for you because I, I don't know, but the magic of bones and when they break, what is the science where they mend back together and they mend back stronger than ever? Like I've heard that, but can you kind of break that down a little bit for us? Absolutely. You know, uh, a lot of times we think of, uh, you know, as lay people, I think we think of bones as these very static structures and it really is magical. Even when they're not broken, there's kind of this, this process of building up and breaking down and building up and breaking down that is constantly happening. And so that, goes in you know and one way to say it is when you when you break a bone your body's trying to mend it that kind of, that process kind of goes into overdrive and um, when when we set bones uh, or otherwise known as reducing a fracture when it's broken or when we fix it and we put things back together and use plates or screws or rods to do that um, we're basically setting up the bone in a good position so that the body can do what it's going to do and lay down new bone. Kind of, I, I always describe it to my patients as kind of a, it's called a callus. First, it's a soft callus, and and then it's a hard callus. And basically, it is like first this amorphous goo shows up where the break is, and then it turns into kind of more of a firm silly putty. 
and then it hardens into bone. And so once that's mature and a bone is completely healed, then theoretically it should be just as strong as it was before. So our role as surgeons when we're dealing with fractures that are out of place or crooked uh, is to try to get it as close as we can back to what we call as anatomic or just kind of where, where, you know, where Mother Nature placed it in the first place. Another question about bone science, I guess, is bone density. And why do women lose bone density? What does that actually mean as, mm. as they age? When we're in our youth and when we in our teens and young adulthood, that is when your body is building your bone density. And we reach our peak sometime in the third decade. And that is, you know, and actually when you think about decades, you think 30s, but actually that's your 20s. And so you actually reach your peak in your 20s. And then and then it's a, sadly, as somebody who's firmly into my 40s, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and, you know, we really start to lose bone density. And so when we talk about the importance of both calcium and vitamin D and, and you know, for different age groups, uh, there are different amounts recommended by the USDA. It's important to adhere to that. Um, and not just in the form of supplements, but trying to get it from dietary sources because the quality of that is going to be much higher. Uh, everything that we do beyond our, our 20s is to just try to keep up and to not try to lose our bone density. And so that we can't underscore the importance of that. And, and different things like uh, different um, characteristics like your your uh, racial background uh, when you're a female versus a male, you know, there are certain qualities that are going to set a person up to be more prone to conditions like osteoporosis down the road. And weight-bearing exercises too, right? Are supposed oh, to be yes. useful. Oh, yes. 100%. I'm assuming also the, the better um, that you nourish your bones and your body, should you have a situation where you break one, your recovery is probably quicker in addition to therapy. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, and I, I will talk to patients about the typical time that a fracture takes to heal. And, and that's under good circumstances, right? Under a perfect setup. And you add different other, other factors in there. Sometimes it's age, although that's kind of relative, but also uh, their bone density, factors like smoking, et cetera. And that can slow down their healing. My patients sometimes will ask me, well, what can I make, what can I do to make it heal faster. And there's not really anything to make it heal faster. And I know, Vanessa, when you went through your, your fracture, I'm sure you were thinking the same thing. It's like, how do I speed this process up? And, and you can't really speed it up from baseline necessarily. It's, it's uh, all about doing the right things to make it heal normally. Are there things on the horizon, technology or science-wise, in the field of orthopedics and bone healing um, that you are excited about, Nancy, that you see coming? 
I think that the technology is always evolving. In my realm in which I am dealing not only with fractures, but also tendon healing, I do a lot of rotator cuff surgery. I do labral surgery for for shoulders that are unstable. I think one of the interesting areas is how we might apply biologics to help enhance the healing. So for example, uh, I always get a lot of questions from my patients about things like PRP or platelet-rich plasma, where you take your own blood, you spin it down, and you try to get the elements of it in the plasma that might help healing. I get a lot of questions about that. I get a lot of questions about stem cell therapy. And, you know, and I think there are definitely applications for technologies like that. But, uh, you know, there's, you have to see what stands up to the, not only the test of time, but to really good rigorous studies. And so, you know, I'm, I'm always excited to hear of potential new developments when it comes to getting the body to heal a little bit better for us to overcome injury a little bit better after surgery. Um, but, you know, I think that we always have to take this new, all of these new technologies with a grain of salt and kind of see what they've been held up to, uh, to see if they're going to be effective and they're going to stand the test of time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring something up very outside of the box here, but I'm sure being a doctor, you've seen it spoken about. Um, and the only reason it comes up because it's top of mind for right now, I'm a nursing mother. Um, what research is there, if any, with breast milk and potential healing of bones? Um, I'm just curious. You know, I I don't know if I can speak to that uh, in full depth, but I do know that when you are a nursing mom, obviously you have increased nutritional requirements. And so it is important as a mom to make sure that you're getting a well-rounded diet and that you're, you're attending to your nutrition so that if you do have an injury, uh, that you can heal it appropriately. You're bringing to mind another conversation we had with um, a robotics expert from Ireland who talked about a soft robotic device that oscillated the fluid around a surgical implant in order to prevent scar tissue from forming um, and preventing the body then from rejecting that implant. So I feel like, to your point, there's some really amazing research being done out there, but it just takes a really long time to test it out. You know, I, I think they are at the stage right now where they're testing it on rodents and then they go to pigs and then maybe they go to humans. So all these things take a, a long time, but it is exciting. And it's got to be very exciting to be in the practicing field and to know that these things are on the horizon, even if it's not immediate. <laughs> that's that's definitely true. And and when there's a new device or new technology, this uh, we as surgeons often get invited to test things out in a lab setting. And for example, with fracture fixation, if we want to try a new device, we can try it on what we call saw bones. And these are uh, fake bones that are held with a clamp and they have a fracture and we get to actually use a drill and use an actual implant and try, try things out with our own hand. So it's always, it's always fun. That's playtime for us surgeons. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so N- Nancy, I know that it depends on um, the severity of the fracture and there are a lot of different elements, but let's say basic fracture that doesn't have to be um, put into place. What is the average on a, 
uh, I would say, again, average human life, like, you know, healthy, not super, super athletic, but just an average person. What is that um, sweet spot for healing? I would say if all the conditions were good, this is somebody who isn't smoking and not exposing their body to nicotine and somebody who doesn't have diabetes or other other metabolic reasons why they might be a little bit slower to heal. If you just get a crack in the bone, a, a fracture, a hairline fracture, a lot of times for an adult, that's yeah, about six weeks. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I'm not a pediatric specialist, but having gone through training and had have having had exposure to pediatrics, you know, we kids are magical. I mean, they they like first of all they bounce. We don't bounce anymore. <laughs> as <adults>. I've noticed <laughs> that. <laughs> but when when they do have these breaks, man, they just heal so fast. And so those times are a little bit skewed. I remember when I was in training as a as a resident and and rotating through the pediatric clinic. There there's a lot less surgery for fractures because it's so much more forgiving. You know, like we were talking about earlier, um, bones are just like this living dynamic organ. And in kids, that turnover happens so much faster that um, you can accept so much more crookedness in a kid's fracture to a degree, um, but way more than an adult and the body remodels it. It'll, you know, if there's a bump, if there's an angle, as the kid grows, it kind of straightens out. And so it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting to kind of compare and contrast, you know, a kid, a kid with a wrist fracture that doesn't need surgery might heal that if they're like preschool or it might be three weeks in a cast, you know, not very long. Uh, whereas an adult might spend, spend six weeks or more. <laughs> so. It's crazy. My sister broke both of her wrists. Like as one was healing, she broke the other one. She was oh, one with a broken bone. <laughs> and I don't ever remember her saying, you know, as we were growing up and I'm, I'm five years, um, her elder, but she never mentioned how like soreness after I remember after my bone healed, it was healed, but I was sore for a very, very long time after that. I would say for like a good year, I yeah. I could tell you it was definitely my left arm. Now I'm gonna have to be like, oh, wait, oh yeah, it was my left arm because it was my dominant hand, you know, that I had in a, in a, a sling. But it was really interesting to me how sore I was for for that long yeah. time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and 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 especially when I do rotator cuff surgeries, I will even for just a straightforward repair where someone's you know torn their tendon off the bone and we repair it a lot of times arthroscopically. Um, I will tell them, you know, you're going to be back doing just about everything that you would normally do in a couple of months, but you'll find that it'll be at that one year mark where you realize you've gone a whole week and you haven't thought about your shoulder at all. And, and so I, you know, I always prep people um, early on before they head into surgery that, hey, you know, this is going to be with you for a while. You're not going to like me for a few months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As an aside, I have a partner who um, he does hip and knee replacements and especially the hip replacements. You know, they these individuals are so hobbled when they end up with advanced arthritis. And, and that's one of the surgeries where literally people wake up and they say, 
oh my gosh, the pain is gone. And then a lot of times they're up and walking very quickly. They're with working with physical therapy right away. And, um, and my partner gets like flowers and candies and, and, and all of that stuff, like right after the surgery. And my patients are like, I hate you so much right now. I, <laughs> I know, I'm, I know I'm going to like you someday again, but right now don't like you. So <laughs> it's so funny. Cause you're talking about all these body parts that I'm like, yep, been there, done. That my rotator yeah. cuff, my shoulder labrum, my I've torn meniscus in my knee, all this pretty much on a tennis court. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Literally, Sue and me walking through Vegas, CES, a couple of years ago, and she's like in a boot. And oh, bless no. her heart, she is like keeping up. And if anyone's been to CES, they know how it is. I'm like, hey, Girl. it was Vegas, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Hands off to you. Hats off to you. Hey, everybody, Sam McLean here from InPhase Audio audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening. Let's get a shift of focus a little bit. Um, we talk about gender gaps a lot on this show, as you do on yours. What does that look like? Orthopedic medicine, medicine in general. I know you have some thoughts. So um, here's the soapbox. Go. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm also a podcaster and my show is called The 6% with Nancy MD. And even though I talk to women in all different industries, the 6% is inspired by my field in which there are approximately 6% practicing women in orthopedic surgery. And that number is incredibly small. Um, in fact, you know, I was on Twitter. I'm on Twitter a lot, but I saw a, a young lady's comment saying, I have had no idea that the number was that small because guiltily, uh, I was watching Grey's Anatomy and they had the one character who was a woman, she's a strong woman, orthopedic surgeon. And uh, this person who, who tweeted this said, I thought it was just all strong women. I'm like, well, <laughs> that's only in Hollywood. <laughs> that's Hollywood. And and no, actually the numbers are really quite small in my field and, and a lot of surgical specialties, uh, neurosurgery being, you know, even lower numbers than us. Um, don't have a lot of representation. And so, you know, the inspiration behind my podcast was, and the name of the podcast was that low number. And also some of the early conversations that I had had with some of my, my female colleagues, um, precipitated that launching of the podcast. Um, I was, and I'll share this story. This is kind of funny because I always think about this. You know, I was a resident uh, in training and I was sitting in an airport. I saw a female commercial captain walk by, a pilot. And I was like, huh, you don't see too many of those. And I, I could tell because she had a lot of stripes on her shoulder. She she was not the first officer. She was the captain. And um, I was thinking, gosh, you know, I wish I could just sit down and have a cup of coffee with her and just say, hey, so what was it like for you? You know, and I realized that we probably had a lot in common, even though we were in completely different fields. And so that was kind of that early, early seed that was planted that ultimately led to me creating a podcast on the matter. But as far as just looking at women in medicine, you know, it really 
just depends on the subspecialty. And there are certain specialties where it is certainly much closer to 50%. It's a, it's a, a much more even split. Um, but when you go into some of the more interventional slash surgical specialties, that number really starts to dip down into the low single digits. And, and it, you know, and, and which brings up another piece. You said I was on a soapbox, so here I go. <laughs> go for it. This is fascinating. Yeah. The soapbox is here for us. So yes, we need a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's it's more than just the numbers, you know, because you, you, there's a DEI, right? It's it's kind of this like hot topic right now, and it's a very easy term to just kind of throw around. But but I I'm really fascinated with just thinking about it and unwrapping it and unboxing it and thinking about it even even in a more deep le- at a more deep level where it's it's not just the numbers, and even though my like the name of my podcast, for example. When we talk about the percentage of women in medicine and surgery is is a number, it's a percentage. It goes so much deeper than that, where it's not like we want to get to 30% or 50% or 70% or, or like take over the field and have it be 100% women. You know, it's that it's it's not that. I think it's so much more. Um, we, you know, we really need to look deeper at at um equity. Uh, and the inclusion piece of it as well, because you can have the numbers, but if you still have the, for those individuals who are the women, people of color, uh, other marginalized groups go through these professions and feel like their voices don't matter, that they're not heard, then it doesn't matter how many people you have um, of those groups within your specialty. So, you know, and I think there's a lot of talk about this out there, but I think it's, it's so, you know, it, it really is so true. Um, and I'll mention that over the last couple of months, uh, several orthopedic surgeons who are women have kind of gotten together uh, and created an initiative called Speak Up Ortho. It is for now, a social media platform uh, with accounts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and what it is doing at in this phase of things is sharing anonymous stories. And a lot of these stories are really heartbreaking and they're shocking. And these are women who ranging from being in the student phase to the resident phase to beyond in, you know, in practice, uh, who have experienced bias, abuse, harassment. Um, but we also didn't want it to just look like the doom and gloom and just shock people with these awful stories. Um, the, the initiative also includes really good stories of, um, bystander action, um, and speaking up when, um, speaking up is, is needed, uh, and also actionable advice so that the individuals who may not necessarily be the target of bias and harassment, uh, learn to recognize it, learn to be not just allies, but advocates as well. And so I'm really proud to be involved in that initiative as well. And it'll be really interesting to kind of see where it goes in ultimately creating culture change. 
So you're bringing to mind for me another guest that we had on the show, Mary Gray, and she talked about how important diversity, equity, and inclusion are when it comes to designing things like medical devices that go in the human body. And specifically, she referenced how women were not faring very well after knee replacement surgery because the devices themselves have been designed for men's bodies. So it's just another reminder of how important it is to include diversity of voices and perspectives and body types even in these uh, scientific and medical professions. I think that it, it there is to some extent, a little bit of a locker room atmosphere in the OR. and But part of that, I think the, there can be some really, there can be some really positive things that come from that, not just the negative things, because, you know, I think that people work together as a team, but they also enjoy their jobs and they have fun. And so there is a lot of banter um, and I really loved, and I still love the environment of the OR, but there is a little bit of that locker room mentality sometimes that I think turns women off. Um, but that's just one tiny piece of it. Um, I think that there is a whole lot of misconception of what is actually needed to be a good orthopedic surgeon. And it's funny, um, there are definitely some orthopedic surgeons, some people within our specialty who feel that women don't belong there. Um, but there is just this pervasive, pervasive thought, even outside our field within not just other medical specialties that are not orthopedics, but even among patients, the general public, that this is so-called men's work. Um, and, and it's not true. Um, you know, I can tell you it's not true. I have so many colleagues who are just brilliant surgeons that are women, and we know it's not true. But, but the stereotype is there. And I'll tell you, as I went through medical school, I discovered orthopedics. I said, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And this is what I'm doing. No one could tell me not to. I definitely encountered a lot of commentary on what I should and shouldn't do um, and whether I should even pursue orthopedics. And I'll share just a couple of the comments that they're total head shakers. Like, like they are pretty ridiculous, but People said them to me. You will not be able to find a find a husband. <laughs> you won't be able to, you know, throw out that that fishing rod and reel them in if you're if you're an orthopedic surgeon. Um, you won't be a good mom. I mean, someone actually said you'll never be a good mom if you're a surgeon. Like we can't be both, you know. Did they tell you why they I, connected the two? Like what was oh, the Oh, it's just it's just too hard. <laughs> it's too demanding. You won't be able to dedicate time to your family if you become a surgeon and yeah. you know, wow. it, it it it'll strip you of your femininity or whatever. And and you know, I and and I was really it's really dismaying as a student. You know, I knew that for me, you really couldn't talk me out of it. So no one making these ridiculous comments to me made me go, oh, maybe I should rethink my decision. It didn't happen, you know, clearly. Mm -hmm. But it it really made me think about the person who maybe um, didn't, didn't have the same gumption mm -hmm. to just push forward. 
Like how many good, talented surgeons have we turned away because of that type of rhetoric? And this is coming from you know, uh, other attending physicians, not even in orthopedics. I think like one was the uh, psychiatrist, one of the, the head of psychiatry at a place where I was rotating who said, you know, and this was my classmate's dad who said, you know, that that's not a very good um, specialty for women. No. You, should, you probably shouldn't do that. And well, it's so, probably because he saw all, all guys, right, in the role. And so yeah. he didn't even stop to question, <laughs> this is how these stereotypes perpetrate themselves. And it makes yeah. me so mad. Yes, <laughs> I know. Doesn't it just like make your blood boil? And, mm-hmm. and you know, and I encounter it less and less now that I'm in practice because I think I, I've been here in Portland in the same practice at the same hospital for 10 years. And and it, it I have been very lucky in that for the most part, this has been a very welcoming place for me. And I've not met um, nearly as many barriers as some of my colleagues have going into practice, into their jobs. And and um, But I will share that one time I had a patient who was seeing me for a shoulder mm-hmm. replacement. Uh, so she had arthritis. We needed to replace the shoulder. And she had an endocrinologist who, um, and I honestly can't remember if the endocrinologist was actually a man or a woman, um, but when she mentioned that her orthopedic surgeon was a woman, the endocrinologist said, are you sure she should be doing your surgery? Because she may not be strong enough. Oh, I, this man. Doesn't, wow. even know, doesn't even know who I am, uh, you know, and, uh, but the patient told me and she said, I told him you were plenty strong. And she was really cute. She was like 80 years old. And she was like, I told him he can shove it. And so, <laughs> good for her. Good for her, right? I was yeah. like, oh, I love you. But, you know, it's still, it's definitely still out there. So it, it is, it is such, it is such a big task to, to change these attitudes uh, towards what, women can do. And it's so much bigger than orthopedics, you know, and, and like with the, the speak up ortho platform, you know, the organizers have heard not just from women who have encountered bias and, and felt very grateful for, for their voices being heard, even albeit anonymous, you know, but we've heard from different specialties saying, Hey, we we want to do something like this. Can we work together? Can you show us how we can uh, create a platform to get our stories out too? Can we collaborate? So, I mean, it, it's clear that we're kind of on the precipice of of something big happening, you know, and it it's it and it feels like that on a broader societal level too with like the Me Too movement, you know, and, and it's like we're at, at this crossroads where we could either choose to move forward and embrace this or we end up, you know, back in the dark ages and, you know, and everything stays the same, so... Absolutely. And I just want to say mm-hmm. kudos to you too. I mean, uh, when I think back on the dad who was a psychiatrist, when you have a mental health professional <laughs> telling a young medical student, like what he mentioned to you and messing, trying to mess with your head, like that's mm-hmm. just, it's very curious to me, but um, for having that gumption, because you know what, it's hard enough to go into a field 
that you know you're already underrepresented and that not many people look like you. Um, mm-hmm. You're like a strong, powerful, badass Asian woman going into this like very underrepresented space, having all the naysayers. It's hard enough getting into the space and realizing, wow, I really love this and I'm going to pursue this no matter what, to have hear all those things and continue. And you mentioned that word gumption, you have to have it. That's your survival. And a lot of people, to your point, do. They get discouraged and they're like, well, I mean, I guess they're they're right. Like, what am I doing? You need to find mentors. You need to find people that, that lift you up and build you up and really um, uh, harness that, that fire within because that's what's going to continue driving that passion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I just want to add, to go to medical school in the very, very first place is just an incredibly ambitious and long mm-hmm. road, right? And it's very mm-hmm. challenging and difficult. And, and so uh, why are we still giving talented young people who happen to be female mm-hmm. this baggage to, to try to discourage them from contributing in a profession where you want the best and the brightest. So I, I want to tell that endocrinologist that he's too antiquated to be practicing endocrinology. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it, it goes so, so much further back than just like, you know, applying to medical school, right? We see all the data of how, mm-hmm. how girls are turned away from STEM fields at right around that kind of end of elementary school, early middle school place. And, and so it's, it's so big, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. like the task is so big. It's not just how do we get more women into ortho or how do we get more women into medicine? It's like, how do we not lose mm-hmm. these girls when they're in sixth grade? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think that you also mentioned something very important earlier uh, through the Speak Up Ortho. Um, it's hard. It's hard already being, again, a minority in your space, if you will, um, underrepresented and being that squeaky wheel, always Mm -hmm. speaking up and being that voice for that underrepresented uh, demographic. Um, But it's so needed. That job is so important. So I continue to um, encourage those squeaky wheels because without them, we're not going to make any movement. And that's how these big things changes happen and they don't happen overnight. It's a culmination of all these people coming together saying what she said. I'm behind that. Yeah. I'm going to continue. Yeah. I'm going to do that next time. I'm yeah. inspiring the next person, inspiring the next generation. So mm-hmm. um, yes, I think that that is so, so, so important. Mm-hmm. And not just the women. And not just right. the women, Amen. you know? Yes. Yeah. We it's need male so allies. Good. Exactly. Absolutely. I, you know, and I had a, an, a conversation with a male colleague of mine who is an ally and is an advocate. And, and I, I said, you know, what, as, as somebody just sitting back and kind of seeing, seeing these posts of these stories, you know, what's, what's your, what's going through your head? You know, and and this is a close enough friend that I I can say speak freely. You know, just tell me what you think, and and you know it was interesting. It was very eye opening. And he had said that as a white male, um, part of the majority, um, that it's it's kind of an interesting place to be because he wishes to be an advocate and wishes to be an ally, but. Uh, he relayed a story to me in which he was going for a jog um, and was chased by three or four individuals that said, you 
you killed George Floyd. It was you, you know? And so, and so he commented about how it's a, it's a, it's also a challenging place to be without feeling also attacked, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I think what, how do you, how do you engage the majority in say like in orthopedics, right? How do you engage the majority, which is mostly white, mostly male, to be a part of encouraging the equity, encouraging the inclusion um, without alienating. And I think that's part of the big struggle too. I think it's it's inviting them into the conversation and it's making them, it's education, right? And it's making them aware, you know, my husband and I have three grown daughters. He's a white male in his 50s and he is a super strong feminist, but it's because he's the dad of daughters. He grew up with brothers. So you, you can't know what you haven't lived and you can't understand what you haven't experienced unless somebody brings you into their world and says, here's what it's like, not in a whiny or an accusational way, because then to your point, Nancy, it just puts people on defensive and then all yeah. the listening and the, the hope of communication shuts down, right? right. But I, I do think it's, it's inviting them to be allies. It's educating and informing without that accusing or that sort of resentment that you've had all these advantages that I haven't had. Because as soon as those things come out, you shut down the conversation. And that's a hard thing for, for marginalized people to do who mm-hmm. do have resentment, or, mm-hmm. you know, because legitimately. Yeah. Right. Well, it's also, right. it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because you have to be able to be vulnerable and have that conversation and be transparent to say, well, wait, yeah, our diff- we have very different backgrounds. You didn't have to deal with X, Y, and Z and presenting them in a way where you're being super honest and, and putting mm-hmm. it all your cards out on the table, but also the way in which you're saying it is well-received and they're saying, oh, I understand versus let me come back with something to defend myself. It's more like, oh, right. I, mm-hmm. I understand where you're coming from. I can see mm-hmm. how that's affected you in this way and why there needs to be change. You're right, because so. I believe in the goodness of a lot of many, probably most white men. You know, I, I mm-hmm. believe in the goodness of people in general. It's just um, we have to get to a place in our communication where we open those doors instead of slamming them shut. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So um, we've talked a little bit about the podcast. We know the mission. Um, Talk to us about some of the topics that you cover and will be covering and some of the cool guests that you've had. I have had so many cool guests. Like I, at any time I talk to a new person and, and or when I look back at who I've talked to, I am just wowed that I get to be in this really privileged position. And it's been just... It, a really fun addition to what I do on the day-to-day as an orthopedic surgeon. And, you know, and I, I, in the process of kind of launching the podcast and, you know, kind of stepping out of my comfort zone, I've started to do a lot more professional speaking. Um, and this is all, you know, it, it blows my mind that I'm, I, I'm even a speaker, that I am even a podcaster because I, I have a public speaking phobia. (laughs) You speak so beautifully. Yeah. And so, you know, and I think at some point I, I had to reconcile that I, I love to educate and entertain and make people laugh and, and reconcile that with that fear. Um, And so that's how I ended up, you know, 
getting into the podcasting with along with the other reasons and the backstory that I told you. But um, I recently talked to um, Catherine Schweitzer, who was the first woman to officially complete the Boston Marathon in 1968. Um, And that episode's not out yet. It'll be out uh, actually late this summer, probably. Um, But that was just really, um, it was really cool to talk to a legend. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and what a badass she is (laughs) and just so warm. I mean, she was just the, the neatest person to talk to and just kind of the impact of what she had done in just running. Right. You know, I mean, that led to so much more. Um, but I have talked to an air force fighter pilot. I talked to the first, uh, female, uh, chief of police of a major bureau. Uh, she's now 78. Um, and that was also here in Portland. That was interesting. And, and I got to, and I had to ask her some of the hard questions because this was last summer, um, when I interviewed her and she had some really interesting insights as well. That's Penny Harrington. And I've talked to some other women physicians who are in fields that are not, not very well represented. Urology, one of them. I've talked to a couple of urologists and some trauma surgeons, movie producers and directors, um, definitely some underrepresentation in the film <laughs> film mm-hmm. industry too, as yes. you know. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I've just gotten to talk to people that I would not normally cross paths with in my everyday clinical life. And so um, it's just been a really, really cool journey. And I've found that I really enjoy interviewing people. It's just fun. I love mm-hmm. it. And I think um, it's so encouraging to hear about all these amazing badass women who are doing incredible things, especially if you're a younger woman and you're starting to think about these careers or you're trying to make your way up in some of these underrepresented professions, just realizing that there's so many amazing women out there that we just don't hear about. I feel like it's it's just a dose of confidence when you mm-hmm. get to listen to a podcast like yours or ours. Absolutely. What day do you release your episodes? So I usually release on Mondays. I am through season one and two and soon to be releasing season three. So very excited about that. Congratulations. Yes, congratulations. And uh, we can't wait to uh, hear the the third season. And uh, yeah, this is amazing. Um, We covered uh, some of your career journey uh, briefly in the beginning of the conversation. But, um, you know, can you kind of walk us through uh, as a child, you know, like growing up, was this something on the horizon for you? You know, I I know we went to medical school, obviously. But before that, you know, was this something kind of brewing? Um, As we know, we've talked about is we you don't see uh, a lot of uh, females in this space. I think Grey's Anatomy, it's really interesting you, <laughs> you started with that because now that I think on it, that show was pretty pretty revolutionary for its time. And you had a really like a powerhouse cast of women leading a lot of those conversations and the lead character, Dr. Gray. So yeah, talk to us about that. How did that evolution become? The, the so, evolution of Dr. Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I entered college thinking, okay, I'm going to be pre-med, not because I had always wanted to be a doctor, but because, and this is so stereotypical, but I'm like, here I am, I'm, I'm an Asian, you know, going to <laughs> UCLA and my Asian parents are expecting me to be a doctor. And so uh, I guess I'll be pre-med and, you know, and it's hard. You're 17. It's like, you don't, 
it's really hard to know what you want to do with the rest of your life. And so <laughs> I, I entered UCLA, walked into um, my first class. It was like bio 101. There were 500 students in there. And I like promptly got weeded out of the pre-med track. And and so I ended up a, a psychology major. Um, I was not at the top of like the dean's list in college. I was, uh, you know, and I would not do anything differently. I graduated with a 2.99999, which I round up to a 3.0. And, <laughs> and um, you know, and I spent six years after college um, working and doing a couple different things before I actually realized, oh, I think I'm interested in medicine and I think I should go do my prereqs and apply to medical school. So I was definitely a late bloomer coming to medicine. But to go back to your original question, Vanessa, um, as a child, what did I want to do? I, and this is going to like date me, but like I remember watching Connie Chung on the evening news and I was like, I would love to be a newscaster. And then I was like, I am really afraid of speaking. And so I don't think I can do that. <laughs> but that's what I wanted to be when I was little. <laughs> well, but now you're doing both. You're like yeah. in medicine and you're a journalist with your podcast. So that's like the best of all worlds right there, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> it kind of came full circle, right? Totally. <laughs> it's so funny how these things that you think about when you're a kid and then you push them aside, mm -hmm. if they're inside of you, one way mm -hmm. or another, they're going to come out in your lifetime. I was the same way. I started out. Um, I started my career in TV news as a broadcast news journalist, but I had not intended to do that because when I was a when I was a little girl, uh, I was kind of I heard from like the the TV news. I mean the um, I heard from the middle school newspaper staff and everybody that like that career path doesn't pay very well and it's hard to break into and all that. So I did some other things, but sure enough, I ended up going into TV news and loved it. And now I'm podcasting. So I just think those things that are inside of you. They're just there to stay and you and they'll come out. I completely agree. I mean, I I, I always say, you know, my sister and I grew up um, in a very overprotective Hispanic household where we really weren't <laughs> allowed to go outside ever without like supervision and like all of our white American friends are like, let's come out and play. And we're like, we can't do that. You know, like oh. I needed my mom's permission to go and check the mailbox type of thing. I learned how to rollerblade in my living room. Um, so <laughs> we got very, very creative at a very young age. And, uh, you know, my dad did, uh, had owned a um, video store for a while. Uh, so we were performers. Like we had a karaoke machine. We sang. We would write sketches. We would watch movies. We would write the scripts to the movies before there was like script-a-rama and you could order the script. But uh, yeah, so we grew up and both of us have just always had a passion of entertainment and telling stories and uh, just love performing. And I, grew, I never outgrew it. Never outgrew it. Here I am. Podcasting. There you are. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and we're all parents. And so it's, it, it, you know, it's interesting that as we, as we look back and we look at the evolution of how we arrived at where we are now, I mean, to, for me, it really um, puts it in the forefront of my mind to not squash those dreams. Mm -hmm. And like, we have an obligation to our children and to like our next generation to really encourage them to, to figure out what it is they love. And, and I, I write and I talk a lot about ikigai, which is which is finding where these four things meet, and it's what you love, what you're passionate about, what the world needs, what can make you money, 
right? And what you're good at, what you love, um, what the world needs, and and what can give you give you a paycheck so you can have a roof over your head. And I like we're all where those four things meet together. Like I think that's it. That's what we should all be going for because that's that's where you know life is so fleeting. Being in medicine, you see that, and um, you know I think a lot now that I'm kind of like at that middle age point um, of what my legacy is going to be. And so I think it's really important to instill that in, you know, not just ourselves, but our next generation too, to think about those four things as they figure out what they want to do with their life. I love that. Thank you for sharing. Can you mm-hmm. tell me what was Ikigai? Is that yeah, what that's yeah, called? Yeah, it's, it's spelled I-K-I-G-A-I. And and I I believe the translation uh, that from Japanese uh, is basically the reason for which you get out of bed in the morning, your reason for being. And like I think if we all paid attention to that, we would all like live these really happy, harmonious lives. <laughs> Amen. Oh my gosh, so much I wisdom. love this. I wrote it I all do down too. in my little chicken scratch. <laughs> <laughs> I did not make it up. <laughs> Nancy, we're both frantically taking notes here. You're our guru today. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, um, Nancy, this has been fantastic. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy that we, we connected. I believe it was through Club, Me Clubhouse, too. correct? Club, yeah. Clubhouse. <laughs> Look at Clubhouse. All right. Well, we have this thing that we call the lightning round that we'd love to do with you. Um, All right. Like these uh, fire uh, questions that we'd like to, uh, to ask our guests to get to know them on a personal level. Uh, Sue, you want to start us out? Sure. Nancy, if you weren't to be a orthopedic surgeon, what profession would you have chosen? <laughs> uh, uh, broadcast news. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> that was easy. We, we warmed you up. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right. How do you define success? I define success by seeing if you feel happy and if you feel fulfilled. I think that supersedes everything else. It supersedes money and things. And and I think it's just that fulfillment. It's finding that ikigai, right? Ikigai. I love it. This yeah. is part of my vocabulary now. I'm going to channel it. <laughs> <laughs> what are three pieces of advice that you would give to your younger self? I would say... It's never too late. I was a late bloomer. I almost didn't go into medicine because I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm too old. But it is never too late. Um, I'm kind of like rediscovering different skills and talents and things that I have here I, here in my mid-40s, late 40s. Um, it's never too late. Um, follow your passions. Figure out what makes you tick and follow them. And don't sell yourself short. I think as women, too often we are just telling ourselves we are not enough and we are definitely enough. Mm -hmm. I also feel that so often what comes easy and natural to us, we take for granted and we think comes easy and natural to everyone else. And those are the things that make you you and that you can demand more pay for and all of the things. So (laughs) um, yeah, I ditto, ditto that. Um, What celebrity would you cast to play you in a movie? Oh my gosh. Um, Can we like, can we cross genders? Of course. Sure. (laughs) All the time. Anytime. Oh my gosh. Ken Jeong, I would say, I would love it if Ken Jeong would play me in the movie because <laughs> he cracks me up. I, that's off the wall. I know that is so out there. There, there are probably like better ones. I, w- I should have said Lisa Ling, but, but like there is this part of me that just 
loves humor and loves to laugh and I love to make people laugh. And so I definitely look to people who crack me up as as a little bit of heroes too. <laughs> Absolutely. Anybody who can lift us up <laughs> is a hero. <laughs> if you could start a movement that was guaranteed to go global, what would it be? I think Speak Up Ortho. Yay. Yeah. I would like it to go global. Great. Yeah. What resources do you wish existed for, we say women in STEM, but let's say women in medicine specifically for you? More accessible mentorship, um, more faces that look like me uh, in the areas that I wanted to be, I think would have been, would have been amazing. How have you surprised yourself throughout your journey? And it could be that you had a hang up that you realized you didn't need to have or a strength that you discovered about yourself that you didn't know about. I think we talked about this a little earlier already, and it was just realizing that I can actually um, speak on a mic and not want to crawl into a hole. And so <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that surprised me a lot. Um, but when I talk to my friends and I say, hey, I've, I've decided to launch a podcast. And I'm doing this. And I'm doing that. They're like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. Like, whereas inside me and inside my head, it was like this big, huge leap um, for me to do. And so I, I think it would be that. All right. Last one. Fill in the blank. Blank like a girl. Oh, kick ass. <laughs> yes, indeed. Always, always. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for your time. This has been amazing. Um, again, if you haven't already, go check out the 6% with Nancy MD podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's been awesome having you, Nancy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nancy. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.WeGetRealAF.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.